if you grew up on the African continent like I did, one thing you might have noticed is that sexual education is lacking in very many ways. And we can draw inspiration from our ancestors who had a system, the way that they did things. Then we can come up with better structures that incorporate the information that we have now, the knowledge that we have now about human sexuality and make for a healthy environment for everybody. Hello and welcome to the Mythological Africans podcast, where we read and talk about the mythology, folklore and culture of different African people. I am your host, Helen Mundi. Episodes of this podcast come from live recordings of the Mythological Africans Twitter Space Storytime Sessions, public talks, as well as from episodes of the Mythological Africans Deep Dive series, which you can watch on YouTube. Today, we are going to be talking about heterosexual practices. To begin, I would like you to take some time and think about your upbringing. Think about the familial, educational, religious, traditional, and other structures which have shaped and influenced you from when you were a child through adolescence to where you are now in your life, whatever point that may be. Think about the information and guidance you received to make you a better human being, student, employee, friend, sibling, or whatever. Can you say that you have received adequate information and guidance from these structures to make you a fully satisfied sexual being? I polled Mythological Africans followers on Twitter with this question, and the majority of them responded in the negative. And as the city didn't feel like they received adequate uh, information or guidance from the structures that influenced them as they were growing up to be fully satisfied sexual beings. And I mean, a couple of followers on Twitter is not, you know, anything to write a scientific paper on. But in conversations that I've had with friends, the sentiment has been similar that, you know, for all the structures that influence us as we grew up, um, there, there wasn't really a focus on developing, understanding and fully enjoying and being satisfied by one's sexuality. Speaking for myself, I can say that I got a lot of information but ways to process that information in a way that led me to being, you know, fully satisfied and comfortable woman in my sexuality was a bit lacking in my upbringing as well. What we will see today, however, is that in traditional African societies, there was an understanding that a healthy expression of sexuality was uh, uh, important to an adult and there were mechanisms, training, structures which were implemented in different ways and at different levels to ensure that once a person became sexually active, they knew what they were doing, they knew why they were doing it and in many cases they had fun while they were doing it. So that will be the basis of our discussion. So our discussion will roughly follow the different stages of human development, starting in childhood, going through puberty and adolescence into adulthood. So we'll look at how instruction and play was used to educate children about their bodies, about gender roles, and about sexuality. And then at puberty, what shifted at that time and the, the roles of these institutions which 
essentially boiled down to training on how to be an adult, which included sexuality training, what role they played at that time. And then we'll go into adulthood and the multiple dimensions in which African peoples expressed heterosexuality. And that, that I think, will be an interesting discussion because there are some very you know, surprising discoveries I made there. Before we begin, I'd like to emphasize that all evidence points to the fact that African peoples understood the reproductive function of sex, but also saw sex as more than a necessity for reproduction. They saw it as a pleasurable activity that men and women had a right to enjoy. And this comes through in the ways that young men and women were trained and also in the activities that uh, people participated in as part of community life. A good essay that goes into this is the essay by Nkiru Nzegu, Originality or African Eroticism. And this is found in a book that I will continue to recommend as we go through this series, um, African Sexuality is a Reader. And what she does in this essay is tease apart the ways in which the Western gaze has impacted how African people process um, sexuality. So she really outlines the different mechanisms and institutions which were present to ensure that sex was an enjoyable experience for men and women. I, I strongly recommend that you read this essay as part of trying to understand what sexuality was to African people and what it can continue to be. That being said, we will begin our discussion, starting with childhood. In traditional African societies of the past, as is very much still the case today, except under extenuating circumstances, childhood really was a time of fun and freedom and discovery. Now, this is not to say that children had complete freedom. They, there were roles they were expected to play. There was work they were expected to do. But for the most part, it was a time of innocence and discovering the world around you and the different things it has to offer. As far as sexual education in childhood was concerned, there were various mechanisms through which children were able to learn about themselves and the world around them, primarily through observation. Children will see things happening and children understand things. So when it came then to asking questions and getting instruction, it usually would go to a parental figure, an authority figure, or a peer. And there were etiquettes, you know, obvious and implied around how these question-answer sessions could go. For example, amongst the Bafia people in Cameroon, what I saw in the literature was that you ask a direct question, you get a direct answer. So children were not necessarily shielded from the mechanisms of sexuality. They were basically given straight answers. Um, in the kingdom of Dahomey, for example, uh, there were rules around who you could ask certain questions, when you could ask, and how you could ask. And something to keep in mind is that the orientation that children got around sexuality focused as much on the, the wider gender roles that they were expected to play in society as it did um, on the sexual act. So open instruction, direct answers to questions, but something else that was used to educate children about sexuality was play. For example, among the Haya in Tanzania, reading sessions were an opportunity for children to, you know, 
talk about certain things, although there were limits to if you were under the age of 14, there were riddles you couldn't tell, for example, riddles that allude to sexual organs. But as we will see, once you got to a certain age and went through the processes, initiations that made you an adult, then you had a bit more liberty. One thing that children did um, to understand gender roles and get a sense of sexuality was play. And this could be structured play, such as the mantumwa of the Ila people in Zambia, or unstructured and unsupervised play. And what the Mantumbwa is, was that it was a time when children would get together, you know, young girls and young boys, and they would make their own little houses, and there would be fathers and the mothers, and, and they would cook together and do things together as adults would. Not necessarily sexual activity, but from the literature that I consulted, sometimes there would be curiosity of a sexual nature, but there was the understanding and expectation that this would be amongst children only, and it would often be dismissed as child's play. So questions and answers, sometimes very direct, play, curious exploration, riddling sessions. These are the different ways in which children in traditional African communities of the past were able to learn about themselves, their gender roles, and their bodies. Now, does this mean that everything was always fun and innocent and no harm or abuse ever happened? Of course not. There have always been people who will prey on the innocence and vulnerability of others, especially of children. From what I understand, across many communities, it was considered a very serious offense to defile a young girl before she went through the rites of passage to become a woman, because that's when she had the knowledge and wherewithal to engage willfully in sexual activity. And the, the defilement usually manifested itself in the form of a pregnancy or if the person was caught in the act, for example. Now, the, the ways in which these situations were addressed would vary. In some communities, you know, the adult would obviously be ostracized because you did something like that. But in some other communities, both parties just got a talking to. Um, I know of at least one case that I read about where uh, an adult man was, you know, discovered to be engaging in non-penetrative sex with a young girl. And both parties were, you know, spoken to and told this shouldn't happen. How that evolved is not captured in the literature. However, what, what I gather is that there was really an understanding that children um, were to be protected from certain things. Children were not to be engaged in certain things unless it's amongst themselves. And even then, um, there were some limits that were put around what, what they could do. Um, in some communities, there were no limits around what they could know. In some communities, there was limits about around what they could know, and there were definitely limits around what they could do before they went through the rites of passages, which usually happened at um, puberty. And that will be what we'll be talking about next. In traditional African societies, past and present, puberty is the time when you received an actual sexual education. So it wasn't just orientation on what was expected of you as a man or a woman in your community. There was actual training on the sexual act. This instruction usually happened in the context of initiation into the men's or the women's society. And it was a whole rite of passage, which would last weeks, months, or in some cases for years. And the education had the sexual component, but it also included knowing how to take care of yourself as a man or as a woman when you get your period, household management for women, for example, cooking, cleaning, and all of that. And for both men and women, 
basic herbal remedies for common ailments, as well as to facilitate sexual activity, treat venereal diseases, etc. Part of these rites of passage tended to be cosmetic procedures, the most famous of which are the circumcisions, both male and female. But aside from that, there were also other procedures such as labial elongation, which were carried out to enhance sexual pleasure. And this is important because goes back to what we were talking about in the beginning. It was understood that sex wasn't just for reproduction. There was pleasure to be had from sex. Let's spend some time talking about rites of passage and the institutions that facilitate them. There are different institutions for men and for women, and the discussion will focus heavily on the institutions for women because I think, or at least what I gather, is that in what has been studied, as far as sexuality is concerned, the focus usually has been on women for a variety of reasons. So amongst the Mende people in Sierra Leone and Liberia, the Sunday school is what is the training institution for women. Um, the Ejagam people in Cameroon have Monikim, the Mbobi is what exists for the Efik people in Nigeria. Kanga is for the Ndembu in Zambia. There is Olaka of the Makua, Yao, and Makonde in Mozambique. And all these different institutions which were charged with initiating young girls into womanhood and training them. So what would usually happen would honestly follow the process of a rite of passage. So it starts with the separation. So the young women or young men are gathered up and taken to a separate area. It could be a house. Um, in the case of the Sunday of the Mende, it's actually a location in the forest which was guarded. You know, no men or girls who had not yet undergone initiation were allowed in this area. And in many cases, it started with the circumcision, which is a hotly debated issue um, for different reasons. In many cases, it's considered violent and traumatic experience. But there are women out there who still support it. And there is a vigorous discussion around this, which is far beyond the scope of this video. So I'm not going to spend too much time on that. But it usually starts with circumcision for many people. And then it proceeds into training in household management, in relationship management, herbal remedies, and of course in sex, understanding your body, knowing what menstruation is and things like that. And one of the better studied initiation schools is the Sunday of the Mende. The location where the women get taken to is called a painguma. It starts out as this free environment where the girls eat, the women hang out, they chat, they tell each other stories. And there's a lot of liberty in the conversation here, right? So you're no longer a child where you're shielded from certain truths. This is where you ask questions and get answers. And the, the beauty of these locations is that you have women across the age spectrum, older women, younger women, mothers, pregnant women. So the young girls really have an opportunity to satisfy every little aspect of their curiosity. And they get this from other women in their community. This is, of course, the Sunday school of the Mende. And there are different iterations of this amongst different people. In some locations, it's a whole ceremony that the girl goes through. The depot of the Adangme, for example, the girl gets secluded with other girls. They get trained. 
they get dressed in certain ways, there are parades, and there, there's just a variety of activities that, on the one hand, give the girl the knowledge that she's supposed to have, but on the other hand, also give her an understanding of how she's expected to carry herself as a woman in the community. In the past, these training locales, whether they are houses or places in the bush, would be called fatting houses because the expectation was that the girl would put on weight, become more womanly in her form. Although interestingly, for Sunday school, the training involves dance. So the girls would come out of training, not necessarily bulky, but just healthy and strong and muscled and poised and confident. So the parallels for the men, you usually involve training in courage, in manly etiquette, how to resolve issues, how to take care of yourself, um, aphrodisiacs, treatments for impotence, and just where to go for advice. In his book, The Dark Child, Kamara Lae, who I believe is from Guinea, um, described his initiation experience where it started out with them getting frightened by the sounds that, that were made to imitate a roaring lion. And this really is just to test your mettle, to see what you're made of, and to infuse some courage into you. And then they were taught about herbs and the different ways to manage relationships, similar to how the women were thought. And then, of course, how to be a man, how to have sex and things like that. And also they were told who the resource people would be in case they had any questions. And this is important because you weren't just told things and then released into the wild, so to speak. You were given information, but also given resources, right? Amongst us, the men in Sierra Leone, the woman who was the resource person for women in the community was called the Sowe. Amongst the Buganda, it was the Senga. Among Zambian people, it's the Mayo Senge. And these, these women, men or women, occupied various roles, had different levels at which they could intervene. In some cases, they would be present for the first time the girl or the boy would have sex to actually guide them through the process, which think about now and the idea of an elderly person and aunt or something being present the first time you have sex is just like, what? No, no, of course not. But for these communities, because the understanding was that it was to be a pleasurable experience and have fruitful results, there was actually focus on making sure that things were done right. So the, the, the experience would vary. In some cases, it was more a community thing. In some cases, it was one-on-one -on -one instruction. But like we talked about before, the idea was that you know what you were doing, you know what was expected of you. Um, the result was fruitful. There were many, many children. And there was pleasure to be had for everybody because sex wasn't always about reproduction, as we're about to see next in adulthood. So some comments and caveats before we move on to adult sexuality. The orientation and training that young girls and boys received in these initiation schools, they were not always perfect. In some cases, there was injury and death as a result of infection after some of the cosmetic procedures, so the circumcisions, the elongations and the like, um, in some cases resulted in you know, a lot of injury and even death. Also, especially as evidenced by some of the information that is still in circulation today, sometimes the orientation that the young girls would get around sexual activity would put a little bit too much focus on the pleasure that they give men and not so much on the pleasure that they get out of sex for themselves. Also, um, there were ineffective and sometimes dangerous herbal remedies that would be in circulation um, as if you've been in any African 
setting in the market on the bus, there will always be these people selling aphrodisiacs and all kinds of things. And this usually, um, in some cases, is not really effective. That being said, the, the intent behind these, these institutions and practices should not be, you know, thrown out, you know, the proverbial baby with the, the, the bathwater. The intention was to orient people, give them the information and the resources and the support they need to be fully function, functional adult uh, sexual beings. And I think that is a good thing. And also this adult sexuality went in multiple directions. And we're going to see a few of them right now. And I want to give a bit of a content warning here. There was a, a variety of sexual expressions, so it wasn't the straight monogamous, you know, or even polygamous sex. There was a lot of things going on here. So if you have an objection to sexually explicit content, I would suggest you stop watching right here, okay? So you're a young boy or girl who has gone through the initiations and other rites of passage which make you an adult in your community. What's next? For most people, marriage. And it could be monogamous, one man, one woman, or usually it was polygamous, you know, one, one man and multiple women. However, even with marriage being the next logical step after initiation into adulthood, what was considered normal sexual activity after marriage, uh, it varies. It was monogamous, polygamous, polyandrous, polyamorous, and there were just multiple configurations that this would take. In some cases, it was extramarital, so the idea that you were married didn't mean that you couldn't have sex with other people. Amongst the Ila people in Zambia, for example, Lumbambo was the process of formally taking a lover, and this wasn't something that was done in secret. It was a public ceremony attended by pretty much the whole community, and it was understood that this woman or this man was taking this other person as their lover. Also among the Ila was the practice of Kusena, which essentially is wife exchange. So two men could agree that they would be able to have sex with each other's wives. And this often involved an exchange of gifts amongst the men. And as you can imagine, there was quite a bit of tension sometimes when one person felt like, okay, the gift that you've given me wasn't sufficient. Amongst many African peoples, as we will see later, the period after which a woman gave birth while she was pregnant usually was a time when she couldn't have sex with her husband. So in some communities, the man was allowed to choose another woman to have sex with. And amongst the queer people in Cameroon or the Bakwiri, my understanding is that this is where the term Mbanya comes from. And the man didn't just randomly select women. Quite often, the, the wife would have a say in who Mbanya was. There was sexual activity in the ritual context. So the Garewal festival of the Wodabe, who are a subsect of the Fulani people, was a time when the young men would dress up in colorful attire and show off their manly attributes. And they were taken on as lovers by both married and unmarried women. So that's something to keep in mind. In many communities, there was an emphasis on not getting pregnant outside of um, marriage, but there was sexual activity that happened, both penetrative and non-penetrative. And we'll see some examples later. The Nogyo fertility rite happens amongst the Hajara and Chad, and we'll go into detail about this because I, I found it very interesting. And so it was extramarital in a ritual context, and sometimes it was transactional. Um, amongst the Fon people in the kingdom of Dahomey, there were the free women who were usually high-born, wealthy women, well-placed, and because they had sex with whoever they wanted, they 
occupied a pretty prominent place in society because quite often the men they had sex with were, you know, notable men in society and this gave them considerable power. And they would, you know, get gifts and stuff from these men and that would become part of their wealth. And as we've seen, there was the Kusiana practice which involved gift giving, gift exchange. In some cases, the woman was allowed to go have other sexual partners who would give her money or gifts, cows and things like that. So these these are some of the, the configurations in which adult sexual activity would show up amongst African people and there are multiple examples of this, which range from more conservative to more liberal. I know among the Mende people, for example, it was polygamous, but not to say that people didn't do things that they were not supposed to do, but what was allowed in society, what was not necessarily frowned upon among the Mende people, the man had his multiple wives and they they had sex with each other and that was it. You know, you, you didn't have as much liberty as you would say amongst the, the, the Ila people, for example. But again, this is what is documented. What actually happened in communities, who knows? Um, another aspect that shows up in um, adult sexuality is the fact that there were practices and techniques for pleasure and safe sex. So amongst the Kikuyu people in Kenya, there's a recall, which really non-penetrative mutual masturbation. And there was a, there was a whole etiquette around it where the, the girls were dressed a certain way, the men were dressed a certain way, and they would pair off together in huts and rub up against each other to orgasm. And it was understood that that's the only activity that was permitted. If someone got pregnant, you really could get kicked out of the village. You'd pay heavy fines and things like that. Amongst the Ndebele of Zimbabwe, there's the practice called Uku Nobonga. And the other terms you see here, Uku Felela and Emata. Gazini, which essentially is thigh sex or intercrural sex, I think it's called. So um, the, the man would slide his penis between the girl's legs and rob and, you know, they both would achieve orgasm. Um, but if um, the girl got pregnant, if they actually had sex, then there was a process where there's a thread which I'll put in the resources for this video. The, the woman and some of her relatives will go sit outside the boy's hut in a particular way, in a particular posture. And this will indicate that, you know, something has happened and then the families will communicate. And the child was welcome into the community and life continued. Um, Kunyanza is something that shows up amongst the Rwanda Rundi people and much of Eastern African peoples. And this is the a process for facilitating female ejaculation and like detailed step-by-step -step instructions on how to achieve that. There's actually a book about this, which I thought was fascinating. So there were other practices using stimulating plants or insects in some cases to rub on the penis or on the labia minora and majora to make them more sensitive, to elongate them. But just practices for pleasure and safe sex and there was instruction and supervision by a more knowledgeable party in many cases and lots of rules and regulations and etiquettes observed. So it wasn't necessarily a free-for-all. And even when it was a free-for-all, there were ritual connotations that, that were to be observed around this. So speaking of adult sexual practices, we mentioned the free women of Dahomey. And these were girls born from rich mothers or princesses who had their own money, had their own compounds. And when they wanted a man, they would just call the man to them. And these women, like I mentioned before, became pretty popular because they had 
they lived freely. They usually would have sex with powerful men and they would have influence on the, the power brokers in society. So this is something to keep in mind. This, this is something that existed back then. Let's focus a little bit on the Hajirai of Chad because I think this is another example of a society that had an approach to sexuality that we of our modern times might find interesting or even objectionable. So they had this fertility festival called Nogyo, and it's described in Peter Fuchs's collection of folk tales from the Hajirai. And I think I'm just going to read this as it is in the book so you get a full picture here. So when it comes to love, Hajirai morality can be summarized in one sentence. Everything natural is permissible. Boys and girls generally know each other from childhood, and their daily dealings are free of prohibition and inhibition. The preferences they develop for each other in the course of work or other activities are usually communicated during the weekly dance. And the man will send his chosen one a small gift with a child together with an invitation to have millet beer with him in the evening. The girl will generally accept the invitation and offer to prepare a meal for him. She will cook the meal and take it to the man's hut in the late evening. And he will either eat it alone or they may eat it together. And afterwards they will drink beer and sleep together. The girl will leave the man's hut before dawn and return to her house. Love affairs often last many months, and if the man hesitates to marry the girl, she will one day refuse his invitation and bestow her favors on another. If the affair has consequences, um, like a child, the man almost invariably offers marriage, although illegitimate children don't bring shame upon the mother and don't affect her marriageability. The fertility rite, the Nogyo rite, takes place in the middle of August and is characterized by total sexual freedom. A man whose daughter is married will invite his son-in-law and his friends to work in his field and he will leave ample provisions of food and beer for them. On a designated day, the wives and maidens of the man's village will go to his field where the son-in-law and his friends are waiting for them and they will work together from early morning to late afternoon. And when the work is done, they'll settle down under a tree to eat, drink, and be merry. And each woman fills a calabash with beer and sits down next to the man she likes and drinks with him. When it gets dark, they sing and dance. If a couple reaches an understanding, they'll leave the company and seek a quiet place. And after they have gratified their desires, they return and look for another partner. So sexual anarchy reigns that night and every woman may lie with any number of men and any man with any number of women. Both married and unmarried women take part in the rite, but not the husbands. And should a husband dare come and look for his wife, he's met with blows. So this is just an example of action in a particular community, which, of course, would differ from other communities. This one leans more towards sexual liberty, and that, that is the case truly for quite a few other communities. So... Different configurations, different expectations, different understandings of what is permissible and what is not permissible. But also there is the understanding that there were times of restriction. So a typical period of restriction would be before hunting, like amongst multiple forest people, sometimes called pygmies, although my understanding is that that is a derogatory term. Before hunting, you weren't allowed to have sex because that would ruin your hunting powers, your hunting magic. Before and while participating in certain rituals and rites, like making beer, and this shows up among the Kapsiki people in Nigeria and Cameroon and other Western African people who have ritual millet or sorghum beer making as part of their culture. 
So while you, if you're a man making beer, you are not allowed to have sex during that time. Amongst the Ila people in Zambia, it was a taboo to try to have sex with a woman who was sleeping. So that presents interesting conditions. Say you were a woman laying next to your husband, he could not try to have sex with you while you were asleep. And of course, during pregnancy and after birth, there was restrictions, usually for the purpose of making sure that the woman didn't get pregnant again right away because it was a clear understanding that this was harmful to the child, for the child's well-being and the woman's well-being as well. And because menstruation was often considered a time of ritual impurity, sex during menstruation wasn't allowed. Now, is this to say that sex never happened during these times? Of course not. There were always people who would break the rules. Um, for example, if a, if a woman who just gave birth had sex and got pregnant, there are documented cases where they would go seek out an abortion because it was understood that the pregnancy at that time was considered not okay. So different configurations, different strokes from different folks, and different understandings of what was considered you know, normal sexual activity. And that's that's the, well, that's one of many messages that I want to come out of this exercise. So the, the idea here is not just for titillation, but to understand that sex and the pleasures and responsibilities and duties that come with it was something that was well understood by traditional African societies. And in my opinion, we have quite a lot to learn from them in this regard. Because you look at these dynamics, there was an understanding that you had to have the required amount of knowledge and the position in society to engage in sexual activity. So there were limits and bounds there. But also there was there were etiquettes around it. There were actions that you could or could not take. There, there were mechanisms for redress, mechanisms to address um, um, difficulties, whether it was in a marriage or in a sexual relationship. There were ways to go about securing a sexual partner. There were ways to go about enjoying the pleasure and relief of sexual activity without pregnancy and other things. So to me, this speaks of a society that was fully engaged and healthily engaged in many ways in its sexuality. And there's no reason why that can't continue to be the case. I'm going to stop here for now. But if there's one thing I want people to take away from this deep dive is that there was a lot of variety in heterosexual expression on the African continent, and there continues to be. And these are not things to be afraid of necessarily, but to be curious about, come to understand, especially as they interact with the dynamics of the world that we live in today. These books are the books that I consult as I go through this series. If you have access to them, I really encourage you to flip through or read them. And I'll have links, any available links in the reference section so you can read them yourselves. I especially encourage you, if you can, to read The Sex Lives of African Women. And this is a book by Nana Dakwa Sekiyama. And this book, I like, I'm still reading it right now. And what I appreciate about it is that it really shows what the reality is for sexual activity across the spectrum for women on the African continent right now. And what's interesting is that you see which traditional values have lived on and how they, ha they are playing out in the modern context that we live in. But you also see how the exposure to global culture is affecting the way African women do sex. So thank you all for making time to watch the video. You honor me with your time and your attention. 
As usual, I'll have the references that I use uh, for this for this video in the comment section. And uh, I encourage you to let me know what you think. Uh, if there's any information that's not fully factual, please, please let me know. And if you have any contributions that will expand this discussion and add to it, by all means, drop it in the comments or, you know, reply to the tweets on Twitter and let's get a good conversation going around this because the, the point with these videos really is to look at the structures that we had in the past which um, informed our lives, look at the ones that have survived till now and see how we can improve on them, right? Uh, if you grew up on the African continent like I did, one thing you might have noticed is that sexual education is lacking in very many ways. And we can draw inspiration from our ancestors who had a system, the way that they did things, then we can come up with better structures that incorporate the information that we have now, the knowledge that we have now about human sexuality and make for a healthy environment for everybody. So join the discussion on Twitter, join it here on YouTube. Let me know what you think, uh, subscribe to the newsletter and keep up with what we have going on, the videos, the talks, the Twitter spaces. It really is a lot of good things that we have going on. So I'm glad you're on this journey with me and I hope you take good care of yourself and I'll see you in episode 13.